I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land that I record these episodes on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their ancestors past, present and emerging. Welcome to the fifth episode in our leadership series of Goodwill Hunters. I'm Rachel Mason-Nunn and I'm the founder and host of Goodwill Hunters. As we go to air today, we are just a few downloads off hitting the 100,000 downloads milestone. So now that you're listening, you've probably just pushed us over the line. So let me say a huge thank you for listening and engaging with this show. It's surreal to think our episodes have been downloaded 100,000 times. I hope in some small way, Goodwill Hunters has impacted upon your personal and professional journey. Today's guest is Peter Varghese. Peter would be familiar to many of us who have been working in development and foreign affairs for the better part of the last decade or longer. Peter has had an extensive career in the public service spanning 38 years. From 2012 to 2013, he was the Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, or DFAT, during the period where AusAid was integrated into DFAT. He was also the High Commissioner to India from 2009 to 2012, and authored the India Economic Strategy to 2035, commissioned by the Australian Prime Minister. I've included Peter's full bio in the show notes. I actually first met Peter a few years ago in Melbourne during the Australia-India Youth Dialogue, where he gave a talk alongside the now Australian High Commissioner to India, Barry O'Farrell. In this episode, we discuss what it was like to lead DFAT during the AusAid integration, including Peter's thoughts on why the decision remains controversial. We discuss Australia's development leadership, including our development policy, and we also look at public sector versus private sector leadership styles during periods of change or crisis. Peter is always insightful and a privilege to learn from. I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks, Peter, for appearing on Goodwill Hunters. It's great to have you here. My pleasure, Rachel. So I want to start this conversation talking about your experience integrating AusAid into DFAT, which for those of us in the development sector was a very momentous time and a time of really significant change in our sector. And you, of course, um, had a very important leadership role at that time. Um, what was your experience of, of that, that process of integration to begin with? Well, it was a big and complicated task and not one for which we uh, really had any notice because uh, this was a decision taken by uh, the then newly elected Abbott government, uh, not one foreshadowed well in advance. Um, and so we had to very quickly think through how we were going to manage what was um, an extraordinarily complicated uh, merger, if you like, um, now, um, the way we set out doing this was we focused initially very deliberately on core principles because uh, I think one of the uh, easy traps you can fall into when you're trying to bring together um, two large organisations is to immediately reach for 
um, organisational charts um, and duty statements. And I um, had the very strong view at the beginning that what was more important than all of that, because it would follow in due course, uh, was to recognise some um, principles which would apply to the entire process because um, there's always very high levels of anxiety, I think, when you're doing something like this. And to the extent that you can give people clarity about how you're going to approach it, I think it helps manage um, the entire process. So we made it very clear uh, at the outset that um, we were going to essentially um, use the DFAT structure as the spine of the amalgamated um, entity. Um, secondly, that um, we weren't going to do this gradually. In other words, we weren't, we weren't going to um, have the two organisations come together and coexist for a period while we worked everything out. We wanted to um, send a very clear message that this was going to be uh, an integrated operation from uh, the outset. Um, thirdly, we wanted to also make it clear that we weren't going to be um, introducing a new caste system into DFAT, um, that we would um, give people coming in from AusAid the opportunity um, to work in um, all parts of the department, really, uh, if they had the, the, requisite, uh, the requisite skills. Um, and um, lastly, to be pretty upfront on the fact that um, part of the decision which the government took was not only to amalgamate but also to reduce. Um, and again, I think to the extent you can, being upfront about all of that um, um, helps. It may not, it may not um, um, get rid of people's concerns, uh, but I think it helps that they know where they stand. And so we um, had to manage all of this in such a way that we had a reasonably significant reduction in the total numbers of the amalgamated DFAT and AusAid, um, and also, you know, to recognise the fact that we were no longer in a growth trajectory with our aid budget, quite the contrary. I mean, uh, when, uh, when the Abbott government came in, um, the aid budget was, um, uh, was significantly cut, um, and I didn't expect that to reverse in at least the, um, uh, the short to medium term. Um, now, in addition to all of that, which, if you like, are uh, the organisational entrails of, uh, <coughs> of how you amalgamate, um, we also had to recognise that there were a number of people in AusAid who did not like the idea of a merger, uh, were not particularly comfortable with the idea of working uh, in a merged department, um, who feared that... Uh, the development assistance agenda would be diluted and weakened um, by the amalgamation. 
um, and we had to we had to deal with those uh, fears. Some of them understandable, um, others um, I think is kind of anticipating the worst, if you like. Um, and we also we also had to recognise that um, um, because we had to contract in size, we would inevitably be, be losing expertise as well. Um, the, the one commitment I did make to um, staff was that I would not go down the path of uh, compulsory redundancies, that we would <coughs> manage this process essentially on the basis of, um, of voluntary redundancies. Um, so, um, you know, um, these, these processes tend to go through various phases. They tend to go through ups and downs. There are times when it, it looks as if um, it's all going to go to custard. Um, but I think if you're pretty clear in your own mind about where you want to get to and if you're open to listening to the concerns that people have, um, it can help you manage it. Now, I was probably an agnostic on amalgamation. I, I wasn't um, an enthusiastic supporter and I wasn't an enthusiastic opponent of it. Um, I understood the policy drivers for it by the government at the time. Um, I recognised that the aid program had grown very fast um, and had grown um, also in size very significantly. Um, and I've always seen development assistance as an adjunct to advancing our national interests. So um, I didn't have um, some of the sort of existential philosophical crises that some others did with the decision to amalgamate. It's really interesting to hear you talk about that time, which nearly 10 years later is something that we as a sector continue to talk about and reflect on with a myriad of different views. You, you say you're agnostic on it. Many others in the sector feel very strongly that it was the wrong thing to do. There continue to be calls to reverse that decision. So it's interesting that the, that the legacy of that era is something that we continue to discuss as sort of a lens in which to understand how our development sector looks today. For you reflecting on that time, is there many new reflections with hindsight? Is there anything that you think might have been done differently? Uh, well, no process is ever perfect, and so um, I'm sure if we had our time over again, there's some things that we might have approached differently. But I think, look, in terms of the sort of strategy we used um, and in terms of how we managed the sort of people and financial and structural challenges, um, it was never going to be straightforward. It was never going to be uncontroversial. It was never going to be opposed by um, some people and supported by others. So I don't, um, I don't have any kind of regrets about um, those key features. Um, I'm not surprised it remains controversial because um, 
you know, they are a number of ways in which you can think about development assistance and a number of ways in which you can think about where it sits in the machinery of government and what its ultimate purpose should be. Um, and people will have different views on this. Um, uh, I do note this is a trend that is occurring elsewhere. So um, Australia wasn't the only country that went down this path. I mean, the, uh, the Canadians went down the path. The Brits have subsequently gone down this path. Um, the New Zealanders have done something um, similar. I mean, none of us followed the other in every detail. We each ended up with a model that was um, that was different. Um, I think one of the reservations that those who opposed this had was they thought that foreign policy would trump development assistance policy. And I think it's the wrong way to think about it, actually, because um, at the end of the day, development assistance is one of many means by which we advance our own national interests and by which we contribute to um, the security and the prosperity of other countries, uh, of the region, um, and um, also of the sort of global system. So, you know, I, I've always seen these as complementary strands rather than one uh, in opposition to the other. Um, I, I remember having quite robust debates about whether all of this would mean that the emphasis on poverty reduction would somehow be abandoned in our development assistance program. And there again, I mean, I, I don't think um, that was the intention of the authors of it, and nor do I think was it the outcome in, uh, in its implementation. I mean, uh, um, my view has long been that um, the most effective tools for poverty reduction lie in the policy framework that countries um, adopt for sustainable economic development. Um, and um, if you get that policy framework right, uh, you can um, have a shot at succeeding. Uh, if you don't get that policy framework right, no amount of development assistance funding is going to get you um, across the lines that you want to get to. So, I mean, there's understandably a lot of uh, philosophy, maybe even some theology uh, that sit behind these sorts of uh, debates. But from my perspective, you know, I was, I was pretty comfortable with the idea that you would um, bring the strands of development assistance, foreign policy, aid, uh, um, sorry, trade closer together. Uh, within the portfolio. And efforts to integrate development, foreign policy, trade, also defence and foreign policy have, I think, escalated in recent years. And definitely there's much discourse at the moment around the integration of all of those different strands, which collectively contribute to our to our national security, to our foreign policy, to our diplomatic footprint. But one criticism that, that we do hear a lot is of a lack of leadership on development. And partly that's a very short-termist view of 
policy, partly because the partnerships for recovery strategy had to be implemented at at the outset of COVID. And and as a result, there wasn't a long-term development policy put in place at that time. And more broadly, there's criticism of a lack of vision and long-term planning around development, which is a question of of leadership. Um, What's your take on that? And what's your take on on the extent to which this government and and, and others have have demonstrated long-term leadership on a development strategy and vision? Well, I think one of the features of government today, and Australia is not alone in this, uh, is that the place for long-term thinking and long-term vision is smaller than either it should be or arguably uh, smaller than it has been at some points in our, in our past. So I don't, I don't think aid is sort of singularly uh, a victim of the absence of longer-term thinking. But that said, look, I, I think there is still um, quite a lot of work that goes on on development policy. There's quite a lot of work that goes on in terms of uh, development strategy. Um, It is the case that um, resourcing um, is smaller, that the program has um, undergone cuts, um, and your ability to lead in this area is not unrelated to your willingness to to commit resources. Um, And I think it is unfortunate that Australia is at the lower end of um, OECD members when it comes to the proportion of the aid budget to, uh, to GNI. Um, I mean, I think we, uh, we should be doing better on that. Um, but we're always going to have to be accountable for the effectiveness of the way in which we expend aid dollars. And so, you know, it comes down to questions about what work and what works and what doesn't work. Um, and um, aid policy and uh, the theory of development is full of discussions and debates and controversies about what works and what, uh, and what doesn't work, um, which is why, you know, I uh, am a very strong advocate of the importance of growth-producing economic policies as the best way to reach your development objectives. Now, obviously, those growth-producing economic policies have to take into account sustainability and they have to take into account um, equity and they have to take into account sort of inclusive growth. But there's no question in in my mind that the focus needs to be on the engines of growth, uh, not on on the distribution of um, uh, of growth. Mm. It's interesting, and I, I suppose over your quite extensive career in development, your views on what underpins development and an ideology would have developed in, in, in the way that you've just described it. Was there a single watershed moment for you um, that really clarified your approach to leadership and your leadership style, or was it just a gradual development? Oh, very much the uh, the latter, Rachel. I didn't have a uh, a road to Damascus moment where leadership and all its secrets were revealed to me. Um, 
in, uh, in, in, in a blinding moment. I mean, I think, um, I think you develop a philosophy of leadership and a style of leadership as you work your way through different jobs and different challenges. Um, you learn a lot from watching people. Um, you learn both what you should do and from time to time you learn what you shouldn't be doing by uh, by watching people. But for me, you know, um, some of the big lessons about leadership that I've learned um, is firstly that if you want to achieve real change, and by real change I mean change that will stick and will last, you need to work with the grain of an organisation. You need to understand the organisation that you're working with um, and you need to pitch your change strategy to be congruent with the grain of that organisation. There's nothing easier in leadership than to come into an organisation, turn it inside out and upside down, um, pull down what's there, um, put something up temporarily and walk away from it. Um, and people have made careers out of this. Uh, but if you, if you want lasting change, you have to have it accepted. To have to have it accepted, people have to understand it. For them to understand it, it's got to be congruent with their own value system and with their own um, sense of belonging to an organisation. So um, that's been a, a very important um, feature of my thinking about leadership and I've you know, described it elsewhere as radical incrementalism. Um, it's radical because you want to achieve significant change. You know, it's, this is not to be confused with um, its evil twin, which is ad hoc incrementalism, where you just kind of take things small step by small step, but with no, with no sort of strategy or ultimate objective in mind. Um, but it's got to be incremental because, in my experience, great leaps forward uh, tend to end in disaster. Um, and certainly not in uh, uh, not in lasting change. So that's one important lesson. Um, the other lesson about leadership is that you you realise that as you go up and up in an organisation, you reach a point where you are utterly dependent on others to deliver what you want delivered. Utterly dependent on them. Um, I mean, people build their careers often. Uh, off the back of their own abilities and capabilities and a lot of luck. But there comes a time, I think, in everyone's career where the only way they will succeed is if others um, are able to um, implement and achieve the goals that you set for the organisation. So how you empower others, how you give them the headroom um, to take decisions how you signal your level of comfort with risk, um, how you back them up if they make a call and it proves not to be um, successful, but it was a, a, a reasonable um, and well-intentioned call at the time. I mean, all of those things, I think, are absolutely essential to leadership. Understanding the team around you, understanding what their strengths are, understanding what their gaps are, understanding what makes them work 
as a cohesive unit, um, not expecting everyone to be perfect at everything, uh, trying not to recruit on the basis of cloning, which I think is just an instinctive um, uh, danger uh, for anyone leading an organisation. Um, the value of cognitive diversity, in my mind, is hugely important. Um, I think too often we get distracted with a tick-a-box view of diversity um, and we forget the fact that the real organisational case for diversity is cognitive diversity, how you bring different views and different perspectives to, uh, to decision-making. Um, and I've always also tried to encourage in areas where I've worked, and I've worked mainly in policy areas, um, what I call the falsification of policy. Uh, in other words, encourage people to find the flaws in policy, the gaps in policy, pull it apart and then try and put it back together again. I don't think we do enough of that. I think, um, I think too often uh, policymaking slides into rhetorical statements um, or, or a, you know, a recycling of talking points. Um, and too infrequently do we question the fundamentals and the assumptions that sit behind a particular policy. So um, encouraging that kind of approach, I think, is uh, a very important part of leadership. And obviously, um, values are at the core of leadership. And if you're in the public service, you ascribe to um, a core set of values, which are uh, not only important, they're legislated, um, and they have to be seen to be um, enacted, not just to be, um, you know, put up on a wall um, and read. Um, so that consistency in terms of values is, is, I think, another crucial part of leadership. A thread that ran through each of your examples there is the need for leaders to understand the grain of the organisation, as you put it, to understand the values of the organisation, of the people, um, and the real challenges that are sometimes very deeply embedded in an organisation but are what makes it tick before they come in and make sweeping changes. And I can't help but think about that in the context of the way you spoke about the Aussie DFAT merger, that it happened very quickly with very little notice with a new government that probably didn't have a deep understanding of neither AusAid nor DFAT. In the context of that leadership advice that you just provided, how, how does that make you reflect on, on that decision made in 2013? Well, I think the threshold decision whether to amalgamate or not is something quite appropriately for governments to take, and I don't think they think long and deep about cultural compatibility or organisational rationality or all the other things that... Um, uh, that we had to think about. So um, the, um, the onus in that case in terms of managing cultural change fell on the department rather than on ministers, and ministers quite rightly, in my view, just, you know, expect you to get on and um, implement the, uh, the decision that's been taken. And, you know, I... I, I um, 
did try to make it clear that we were going through a process in DFAT, in DFAT in any event, irrespective of amalgamation, where we were looking to achieve uh, a number of changes in the way in which we worked and the culture of the department. Um, and I had started, I wasn't alone in this, I mean, I, I had started that process when I became secretary. My predecessors had also been uh, involved in it. And I saw... Uh, the culture management, the change management, as how you bring former AusAid officers into that change agenda that was occurring in, uh, in DFAT. And a big part of that change agenda in DFAT was um, to push uh, decision-making down the line um, to try and, if you like, turn the tide of a public service which was becoming more and more top-heavy um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed every time I look at organisational structures, even since I've left five years ago, uh, how more and more top-heavy uh, the public service has become. Um, it also meant cultural change in terms of how we can ask ourselves the question, how does DFAD help other government agencies do their job better? Because um, understanding the international dimension of domestic policy, I think, is a key part of, um, of good policy making. And what can DFAT's role be um, in, uh, in doing that? Um, to also have a view of the department that wasn't quite so distinctive as its history has been. In other words, to recognize that DFAT was part of the public service, it had a distinctive set of duties and uh, a distinctive um, uh, footprint being a, a global organisation, but that ultimately um, we were all public servants um, and to encourage people to move around the public service more and to recognise that time outside of DFAT can be time um, well spent and that you look at DFAT in a very different way if you spend some time outside of it and come back to it. So, I mean, all of those things were um, important parts of an organisational change agenda uh, that we were going through when the government um, announced that um, AusAid was going to be amalgamated with, uh, with DFAT. Building upon your last point there, you've, of course, now spent a lot of time outside of DFAT, so do have that ability to reflect on how governments and departments handle crises compared to how business handle crises. How do they compare and what are the key differences? Well, it may not look like this um, from the outside, but I, I, I think governments are much better equipped and much more experienced to handle crises than the business sector is. I mean, in, in, in government, you're so used to dealing with um, criticisms and attacks um, that um, you sort of work out your talking points, put on your armour and go and do battle. And that's, you know, part and parcel of a day in the life of government, whether you're dealing with these issues at the political level or whether you're dealing with these issues at the senior bureaucratic level. Now, obviously, you know, how, how a minister will respond will be different to how a bureaucrat will, uh, will, will respond. But basically, 
it's part and parcel of your um, daily regimen almost. Business, it's quite a different thing. I mean, uh, businesses can be very easily destabilised by public criticism, public attacks, um, negative media coverage. Um, they need to uh, worry a lot more about the impact on a share price uh, and there isn't really an equivalent in government unless you consider, um, you know, an election every three years as the sort of equivalent of um, an annual general meeting of a, uh, uh, of a company. Um, and um, I think companies are much more constrained by their legal position and their legal obligations than you are in government where you have a, uh, a measure of a greater measure of flexibility, which is not to say governments can act contrary, uh, contrary to the law. So um, I think, you know, at one level, it's kind of disturbing how easily sabotaged companies and businesses can be um, from the outside. Um, and I suspect this is something that, you know, all boards one way or another uh, have, to, have to deal with. Some, some have to do it sort of... Um, in a very painful and dramatic way and others, you know, maybe a bit more fortunate and uh, not have to face it front on. But they are uh, very different um, ways of responding to crises in government and in the private sector. Mm, indeed. And an unprecedented crisis that both bo uh, boards and governments have faced over the last two years is, of course, COVID-19 and the word unprecedented, I'm sure we're all so tired of it now, but it, it really was unprecedented in terms of, um, well, the shock and, and the magnitude of, of the crisis that organisations across all sectors had to deal with. What are your reflections with your international development had on for, for our region and, and what's required of our leaders in the coming years in dealing with those continued impacts? Well, I think the conjunction of um, COVID and um, what are some profound shifts in geopolitics and geoeconomics are going to have very significant aggregate effects on um, our region and also on the position of both developed economies and developing economies, because we um, are entering now, in my view, um, a new phase of um, both geoeconomics and geopolitics. So we're moving into a world where um, globalisation is slowing significantly um, into a world where um, a measure of decoupling around the US and China in particular um, is going to be a feature of our um, global economy, um, a world where protectionist instincts are likely to be stronger and politically more attractive, whether you're in a developed economy or the developing economy um, and a world in which, um, you know, the momentum for trade liberalisation, investment liberalisation um, 
is going to be um, significantly slowed. Now, um, we're all going to pay a cost for that one way or the other in terms of slower economic growth, and you can already see the projections for global growth is, um, uh, is downwards. Um, I think it will mean that for many of our developing country partners, uh, the economic road is going to be a tougher road for them. Um, I think the uh, difficulties they'll face uh, in terms of engaging with the global economy and the benefits that might have accrued to them um, through comparative advantage in trade and access to markets uh, will have an impact on their standard of living. I mean, I think we've already seen that COVID has seen a spike in levels of uh, absolute poverty as well as levels of, um, uh, of other poverty. Um, I, I just think this is going to be a much more difficult period to navigate um, both governments navigating domestic policies and countries navigating uh, international um, cooperation and international uh, institutions. And if you put an overlay of um, what we need to do on issues like climate change, um, where global cooperation is going to be essential, um, you can see that these are not going to be easy times um, from a development point of view or easy times from a whole lot of other uh, points of view. So um, I think it's going to take us a bit of time to actually find our feet in this setting and to work out, you know, what is the best way of achieving the goals that we, uh, that we do want to achieve. Um, and, I, you know, I mean, I, th I, think, I think the development cooperation agenda will still be a big part um, of what we, should be, what we should be doing, but um, how it's applied and what we're looking for it to achieve, I think, is going to evolve um, over time. Mm. So is there one particular skill? that's required of leaders working in this sector in the coming years? Uh, well, I think the biggest um, um, skill we need is courage um, because um, it takes courage, one, to have a clear-eyed analysis of what you're facing rather than pretend that it's something else. Um, it takes courage to set a course which may um, meet with a lot of resistance. Um, it takes courage to stake out a position in polities and communities where um, finding common ground is getting harder and harder. And it takes courage to persevere with the course of action at a time when um, trust in government and in institutions um, are, um, are declining, uh, not, not rising. So um, we're going to need leaders with a different type of skill set um, for our future. You know, I think um, um, we have yet to see a style of leadership and a leadership model that has worked out how to navigate its way positively through um, 
a society or a community that has been wrenched apart through social media where the points of common ground are harder and harder to to see um, and where the sort of agendas of particular groups um, seek to hijack the bigger, you know, the bigger national agenda. So all of that, I think, is going to take a different type of political leader. But, um, you know, some leadership skills do not change. I mean, you want leaders with intelligence, with integrity. Uh, you want leaders who've got empathy. You want leaders who are able to understand things. But I suspect the thing we're really going to be tested on with our leadership is courage. Very wise words to finish on. Thanks, Peter. My pleasure, Rachel. That was Peter Varghese on Goodwill Hunters. I'll be here next week for the next instalment in our leadership series.